Welcome to the April edition of Information's Crossroads podcast. I'm John Burke, uh, your host and America's editor for Information News. Uh, joining me today on the podcast is uh, Kat Sadehi of HNTB and uh, Benjamin Hall of John Lang. Uh, they're part of the Young Professionals of Infrastructure. Uh, before we get into the program, Kat, I'd love to hear more about YPI. So why don't you go take it away? Sure. Thanks, John. So as John mentioned, my name is Kat Sudeiki. I'm a vice president at HNTB, and I do strategic advisory work with a focus on P3s and alternative delivery. So I'm one of the founders of the Young Professionals in Infrastructure, or YPI, and I'm currently co-president along with Ali Lozon, who's at McKinsey. So I wanted to give you just a bit of background on YPI, and then I'm going to transition things back over to John and Ben. So YPI is an industry organization that was established and is run by young professionals from industries across the infrastructure space. So we have about 35 organizational members from the public and private sectors, got developers, contractors, financial advisors, law firms, public agencies. So our membership really runs the gamut. So we founded the organization in 2015 to help with knowledge sharing and networking for junior and mid-level professionals, specifically in the public-private partnership and innovative delivery space. So while we started out with more of a social networking focus, in the past few years, we've really transitioned to having more of a focus on substantive programming and professional development. So we're really trying to ensure that we help build a pipeline of talent in the infrastructure space that has a dynamic knowledge base and skill set so we can help drive forward successful projects and programs for our clients and communities. So YPI has actually been collaborating with Infra Americas for about four years now. And our marquee networking event is usually centered around the Infra Americas P3 conference each summer in New York. So we've decided to expand our collaboration and working with John to partner for certain podcast episodes is one way that we're looking to do that now. So we're really excited about that and also about today's discussion. So just quickly before I transition things back over to John and Ben, I wanted to briefly address the context for today's discussion. So more and more in recent years, the landscape of P3s has begun to change and the type of deals that core players in our space have begun looking at has really diversified. Um, and there are also a lot of new market participants that have entered onto the scene. So while initially a lot of us in YPI and the P3 space generally were focused primarily on transportation deals, because that's where the P3 market was largely, we're now seeing more varied types of projects coming to market. So both for me at HNTB and at YPI, we're starting to broaden the scope of what we're focusing on to really wrap in things like real estate and emerging technologies, which are becoming core elements of new projects that are coming to market. Um, so we're looking at more projects that aren't just classic DBFOMs, um, but that have different structures, look a little bit different. Um, so today we're going to be looking at a type of project that's somewhat unique and has been growing in popularity in recent years, distributed energy deals. So John, I'll let you take it from here. Great. Uh, thanks for that introduction, uh, Kat. Um, and uh, just to remind everyone, uh, if you haven't seen on our bulletin, of course, the USP3 conference obviously was moved uh, to the fall uh, from its uh, June date this year for obvious reasons. Uh, we're going to be uh, in October 5th and 6th, I believe. Um, anyway, so let's talk about this emerging trend. Um, 
you know, where we've picked up coverage on this the most has been in the university space, although there's been some other deals. Um, the big headliner was the University of Iowa um, doing an energy uh, P3 project with um, Anji and Meridium, um, in which, um, you know, they're going to get a modern energy project in exchange for uh, a $1 billion upfront payment, which is going to also turn into an endowment for the, the university. Um, but there's been certainly other um, distributed energy projects around um, that the university space as well as some other areas. Uh, and uh, Ben, I thought we'd just um, lead off with just getting the, uh, a good idea about what's driving investment in the sector uh, at this point, um, as distinct from uh, utility scale renewables. Yeah, thanks, John. Um, I think you, you, you've touched on, on something there, an important point. I think there's the market's really seen the success of, I think, firstly, OSU back in, in 2017, which was also won by, uh, by Engie, but with a different financial partner, uh, Axiom, on that deal. And then, and then more recently, obviously, the Iowa deal, um, where both universities received upfront payments in excess of a billion dollars. So it's a pretty eye-watering eye-watering figure. Um, so I think, you know, that's really demonstrated to to the market that with respect to the, the financial outcomes, at least, um, that the P3 model can be utilized really successfully to, you know, monetize effectively what are non-core assets to in a, in a university kind of um, construct. Um, from, a, from a CFO perspective, I think, you know, it makes a lot of sense, right? Um, they're effectively borrowing off balance sheet from the private sector and, and using those funds to pursue, you know, strategic objectives of the university, you know, whether that's, I don't know, expanding curriculum, um, offerings to students, research and development, or as you mentioned, um, funding university endowments. I think the last point is, is an interesting one. Um, you know, based on discussions that we've had, uh, you know, I think some CFOs are looking, this, uh, looking at this as, as like an arbitrage opportunity, really, where effectively we're looking to borrow from the private sector at a, you know, high single-digit IRR and then looking at what they can earn on that money in their endowment funds, which, you know, could be low double digits to, to mid uh, double digits. So there's certainly a, potentially an arbitrage play there for, for certain institutions that have got good money managers in effect. Um, so that, that certainly comes into play, I think. Um, I think there are a bunch of other reasons why, you know, there's, there's been, you know, an increase in interest in this sector from, from universities. You know, I think from a, from a university perspective, you know, they've got to be asking themselves the question and whether or not they win, want to be in the business of, of running utility plants. You know, it's not, it's obviously core to their mission to have that infrastructure in place to be able to deliver on their core mission. But from an operations perspective, you know, I don't think, you know, they're, and they would probably acknowledge that they're not necessarily best place to be doing that or, you know, ultimately want to be doing that. Um, you know, there's, there's significant deferred maintenance on a lot of these systems as well, which require, you know, substantial immediate investment to, can, you know, continue providing reliable and efficient services to the campuses. And, you know, for the less well-heeled universities, you know, they, they simply can't afford to do that. So, you know, again, the P3 model can be a useful tool to, to help that. Um, again, it comes back to some of the, the benefits of P3 as well, I think. Um, private sector know-how, um, you know, can be used to improve efficiency and reliability. 
Um, you know, many universities also have decarbonisation goals uh, and are looking to the private sector to, uh, to help with that. Um, from a private sector standpoint, I think it's a fantastic opportunity for both industrial players as well as financial investors like, like Chong Meng. You know, I think from an investor perspective, you know, these assets garner a hell of a lot of interest. I think, you know, if you look at the Iowa deal, for example, um, you know, there's been public information released about the financing structure for that. And, you know, there was a half a billion dollar equity check available there on that particular deal, which, you know, in the P3 world, it's hard to come across a half, half a billion dollar equity check. So significant investment opportunity is obviously highly attractive. You've got a long-term concessions, you know, 30 to 50 years, which again is, is, is very attractive for, for infrastructure investors that are looking for those long-term and, and relatively stable cash flow profiles. Um, generally, you've got well-structured concession agreements uh, with, you know, appropriate risk transfer consistent with, with other P3 precedent in the market. Um, most of the institutions coming to market have, you know, strong credit ratings. You know, I think on the public side, you know, over 50% of public universities have, a, uh, have an A-grade credit. I think it's less on the, on the private side, but it's still pretty substantial. Um, and you know what, they're, they're relatively low risk operations. So from an investment standpoint, um, you know, it makes a lot of sense. Thanks for that. Um, I think we've uh, noticed too that um, in, in league with both the university's goals too, we've noticed obviously state universities going in line with overall state renewable goals as well as part of this. Um, have you observed anything about um, the, the private versus public universities in, in terms of pursuing these projects? If it's be, if it's a different process or if it's more difficult, just curious if you've had any observations about that. Yeah, um, that's that's an interesting point. Uh, you know what what I think is that the private sector may um, it may be easier for the private sector universities to to pursue these op opportunities on on a bilateral basis, right? So you saw a deal done last year between Clearway Energy and Duquesne University. Um, and, you know, from what I understand there, that was an unsolicited proposal that was put, put together by Clearway and pitched to the university. Um, and they were able to pursue that. Um, it took, to, took some time to get the structuring right. Um, but I think that private universities have, you know, greater capability to pursue those kind of bilateral type of deals versus public universities, which have, you know, they need to follow procurement laws and, and have other regulations that they need to abide by uh, for competitive bidding and, and, and the like. So, you know, certainly I think, you know, there's, there's a greater propensity for um, industrial players and, and financial investors to be speaking with private in, the private universities rather than the public universities to try and get a, you know, an unsolicited bilateral kind of deal off the ground. Uh, are there any interesting deals in the market right now or in development that you think are worth highlighting? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I'm spending a lot of time at the moment, you know, following the market in this space. I think uh, if we think about some of the, the immediate term opportunities, um, obviously the University of Idaho uh, is currently in the market with a, with a procurement. Um, they issued an RFQ, I think it was late last year. Um, and according to, to the press, have actually shortlisted 
a group of bidders. Um, I think the scope for that that project looks pretty typical um, in terms of what you'd expect to see uh, for a utility system plant. So I think it's fairly all-encompassing with a combined heat and power plant, chilled water, water treatment, uh, and distribution systems. Um, so, you know, where that project stands in terms of its timetable at the moment with, with COVID-19 uh, in the mix is, is a little bit uncertain, but certainly that's that's out there and, and garden a lot of interest from the market. Uh, the other one is Louisiana State, uh, LSU. Uh, they're exploring a project which uh, was slated to come out in, in Q2 this year with, with an RFQ. Um, they actually received an unsolicited proposal as well. So they're kind of uh, running those two processes uh, at the same time. And I think we'll be looking to make a decision one way or the other before they launch a, an RFP process. I think that deal will look a little bit different to OSU and Iowa, for example. It's, I think it's probably going to be more of a availability greenfield style um, P3 versus, you know, Iowa and OSU, which more of more of a monetization. Um, so we'll we'll wait to see what comes there. And uh, Maryland is also in a similar state of play. There, they're uh, looking to get final approvals for uh, launching a procurement process, uh, which was slated to occur in Q2 as well. But again, uh, a little bit of uncertainty around, you know, how these processes play out in the, in the short term, given the uh, COVID-19 situation being so fluid. Um, the other project probably worth mentioning that's been in the market for a while now is, is Dartmouth. Um, uh, but that project has faced some, some delays. Uh, I think there's some alumni um, as part of that university who have opposed the energy solution, which is a you know, combusting of renewable fuels. Um, they weren't too happy with, I guess, the, the overall carbon footprint of that solution. So the university, I think, are reconsidering what the, the, the right energy solution is there. But um, uh, there's actually no timing update on, on, on when that's going to be relaunched. Um, there are other deals that are a bit further out, uh, which have been in the press, and, and you guys have reported on Washington State and Wayne State, but I think those are a little bit further away in terms of uh, when they're expected to come to market, if at all. Uh, great. Uh, and getting on to, to COVID-19, um, you know, you kind of made an interesting point about uh, LSU, if, you know, about being uh, availability payments. Um, you know, we're obviously facing a point where municipal uh, bond spreads are starting to widen. Um, so that could certainly uh, you know, play a role um, in how that project uh, moves forward. But what's your views on how the crisis is affecting these deals um, and the, also the attractiveness of other institutions pursuing the model at this point? Yeah, I think I think uh, much like everybody in this situation at the moment, I think no really nobody really knows what's around the corner. Um, it's yeah, we're living in crazy times, unprecedented times. Um, so you know, I think it's hard to say, you know, what's going to happen with these projects in in the short to medium term. Um, you know, I think ultimately there's enough of a uh, impetus behind the rationale for the projects that you know they'll they'll ultimately get done. I don't think that COVID-19 changes any of that. It's just a matter of timing in terms of um, being able to commit the resources, have the people available, and also have um, the market available to, uh, you know, formally launch the processes. 
I think clearly universities at the moment are probably focusing on, on other things. Um, you know, they've got empty campuses at the moment. Uh, they're probably all focused trying to set up digital teaching platforms or, you know, however they're managing that. But, um, yeah, so my view is that, you know, the, the projects that have a strong basis um, for being implemented, you know, they'll, they'll come to market eventually. It's just got to wait for the dust to settle on COVID-19. Um, I think in the, to address the second part of your question about whether or not COVID-19 attracts or affects the attractiveness of this sector to, to the private sector, I don't think that changes at all. Um, you know, the fundamentals of why we would want to be involved with this deal or these types of deals haven't changed. Um, I think what will happen is people will be paying a lot more attention to, you know, the risk provisions in the concession agreements or the lease agreements with respect to force majeure and pandemics and how they're treated in, in the lease agreements because, you know, that's obviously a, a big focus for everybody right now. I know certainly um, at John Lang, uh, you know, we're dealing, dealing with COVID-19 live across our portfolio of assets in, in North America and, you know, force, force majeure provisions are getting a lot of attention at the moment. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure that's the same for absolutely everybody in the, in the infrastructure space right now or managing a portfolio of assets. So, you know, I, I don't think the attractiveness of the sector changes. I just think people are probably paying more attention to, to certain risks. Great. Let's um, just move away from the university space for a second. Um, you know, obviously, uh, John Lang has a global footprint across um, greenfield energy development projects, as well as transport, as well as all over the, the, the greenfield uh, development space as regards to infrastructure. Have you guys looked at distributed energy deals just uh, to cities and, and states? Has that been something that's been something you guys have, have looked at before? Yeah, I mean, uh, if you look at if you look at this space, um, it, it's it's not limited to universities. I think, obviously, the the immediate opportunities have been coming in the in the university space. But you know, combined heat and power plants, the distributed energy, cogen, whatever you want to call it, um, has applications. You know, far beyond just just university campuses. You know, you've got. Uh, healthcare facilities, military and government installations, airports, large industrial complexes. Uh, you would have may have seen that there's a deal in the market at the moment um, where Stone Peak is selling an industrial asset. Uh, so, I mean, there's, there's lots of opportunities in the market to pursue um, these kind of uh, distributed generation opportunities beyond beyond university campuses. I think they're they're certainly harder to, to come by um, and um, aren't necessarily going to um, be as common as universities in terms of public procurement opportunities. You know, I think you know maybe on the airport side you might see a couple come out. But certainly on the industrial side, you know, they're more kind of private uh, deals done on a bilateral basis. But certainly we see opportunities there for sure. Great. Thanks for that. Um, so just to sum it up in terms of um, what all these trends mean for the, the workforce required to procure and deliver the projects, um, be good to get insight, uh, you know, just specifically around, say, how modeling and forecasting skills are necessary for uh, a social infra project 
you know, relative to a transport P3 um, or, or here in this case, uh, you know, an energy deal uh, relative to a transport P3, it'd be good to get your, your views on that. Yeah, I mean, coming from a, a modeling background myself, I think, I don't necessarily think the skill set is, is, is materially different between a, a transport deal, a social infrastructure deal, a renewable energy deal, or a, a campus utility plant deal, I don't think it, it really matters, right? I mean, if, if you've got, understand the fundamentals of um, financial modeling, then, um, you know, I think you're, you're well-placed to be able to cover a lot of sectors as long as you, one, understand the deal properly, how it's structured, um, and, uh, you know, you've got, uh, you've got a sound base in, in you know financial financial modeling skills, I'm I'm not necessarily sure that the skill set changes that much. To be perfectly honest. Excellent, thanks for that. Well, uh, it's been a really interesting uh, journey you've taken us through these uh, different types of um, projects, and uh, really great to to speak with you guys today. Um, look looking forward to doing it again uh, down the road. Uh, so that's all the time we have. Uh, this has been uh, John Burke for information. Uh, thanks for tuning in.